I would love to do that for you, but I don't have the book right here. Could could could, could I could I run upstairs and get it or what? How would uh, you sure. Know? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Hold the hold the phone, as they say. I'll be right back. Welcome to What Comes After, What Comes Next, with me, James Shaw, Minister of Climate Change and co-leader of the Green Party. You might remember that one of my guests for the first series of the podcast was the legendary music producer, Brian Eno. I talked with Brian at the time about what different models and structures for making music can teach us about how to organise society and our politics. It was a very different take to that of the guests I'd had on previously. And I can definitely say the same about today's episode. This series I've spoken about trade and climate change with Geoffrey Sachs, climate science with Kate Marvel, our prospects for the future with David Wallace-Wells, and indigenous rights with Hindu Omaru Ibrahim. And just like we did last series with Brian Eno, this episode we have something a little bit different. A conversation with the award-winning novelist and poet Barbara Kingsolver. Barbara is probably best known to you as the author of The Poisonwood Bible, which was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, and the award-winning The Lacuna. Climate change has also been a common feature in her work, most notably in the novel Flight Behaviour. In 1998, she established the Bellwether Prize, which promotes fiction that addresses issues of social justice and the impact of culture and politics on human relationships. And in her own 2002 collection of essays, Small Wonder, Barbara deals with environmentalism and social justice across 22 essays about nature, family, literature, and the simple pleasures of everyday life. Most recently, Barbara contributed a poem to a Time magazine special report called 2050, The Fight for the Earth, which provides a powerful look at the politics of consumption, equality, and climate change. This is a fascinating conversation that looks at climate change from the perspective of an artist and writer, and I'm very pleased to say it even features a poetry reading by Barbara herself. As always, I'd love to hear your thoughts and feedback. My email is james.shaw at parliament.govt.nz. Please also tell a friend about the show, or give us a rating or review as it will help others to discover the podcast. Now... Here's my conversation with Barbara Kingsolver. Barbara, thank you so much for uh, joining us. I'm uh, really looking forward to this conversation, in part because uh, you're actually one of the only people from the domain of the arts uh, that we've had on What Comes After, What Comes Next. Uh, and I would, I would like to start, if I may, um, by asking you what you think the role of arts and literature is in helping to bring about this extraordinary transition that we have to make around the world over the coming decades. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me and for including art and artist art, um, and considering the arts as uh, being important to this conversation. I believe that artists are um, can be and and traditionally have been the bellwethers of society. We're uh, kind of tasked with 
looking uh, looking forward and looking back and helping people to process information and process not just human emotion, but also um, the information about the world and to place ourselves in an historical context and in an environmental context, all of those things. I mean, it's, but ultimately it's up to the individual artist to make our art about whatever we think is important. Um, that's what, that's what makes good art happen is passion. Just like any other work, it's it's the things that you care about that will get you back into your your laboratory or your studio or in my case, my my computer every day. So I do. I always have written about the things that matter most to me and that I believe really probably matter most to people in on the planet. And lately, I mean, for the last decade anyway, when I look around and think about what is most important for me to, you know, what issues are the most important for me to tackle, climate change is, is number one. I mean, it's it's the existential crisis and it's uh, increasingly shocking to me that we're, we're managing this, you know, global denial in our daily lives. I mean, plenty of people, yourself, you know, obviously, um, and many others are working on it every day in a real sense. We, you know, you come to your, your job with a focus on climate change. Most of us don't. Most of us go to work um, and carry on doing whatever we're doing, driving our cars and, and doing our work uh, on this, kind of bland assumption that life will always carry on uh, that the, the the world will keep turning and the and and human life will persist as it is now uh, even though we know better most of us know better but we still manage not to think about it so i see it as my job to um, kind of to, um, tap a hammer on that <laughs> on that glass window of denial uh, I don't write science fiction per se. I don't write speculative fiction per se. So it's not really my purview to say, look how the world will be in 2035 or 2075. But the fact is climate change is happening now. And uh, nobody in your part of the world needs to be told that, I don't think, because um, it's hitting uh, some parts of the world much harder than others. But any of us, um, who reads the paper has you know has seen the droughts the the deluges the fires um even the sea level rise the changes that are happening right now and so that gives me plenty to work with can i ask you about that distinction between what you're writing and the speculative fiction or as it's come to be known cli-fi mm -hmm. um uh, and you know people think about um authors like Kim Stanley Robinson, for mm -hmm. example, who, mm -hmm. you know, has, has read, has written an, enorm, an enormous amount around a kind of possible futures mm -hmm. uh, in a, in a climate changed world. How do you distinguish between that, that and, and what it is that you're trying to do or to say through your work? Well, it, I don't really spend much time worrying about the distinction, um, other people make that choice for me. You know, that, I mean, a book will be marketed by a publisher as something or another. I've established 
my reputation as a as a literary novelist and as a sort of realist um um maybe on the margins of magic magical realism at times but for the most part sort of grounded in the here and the now i think it's it's interesting that traditionally it, there's been um uh science fiction has a history that is um has a lot of baggage myself um i grew up with an aversion to science fiction that has persisted hard that's been pretty hard for me to conquer and i'll tell you why when i was growing up when i was a kid and first started reading you know in my teens uh the the the, the popular science fiction writers of the day and then started watching things like star trek you know uh first generation. Um, here's what I saw. These writers projected technological change one or two or 500 years into the future. But you know what? Women were still serving coffee. Um, everybody in power was male. It was all it was the it was like the social the social setup of the 1950s somehow that was never going to change. Well, that made me want to shoot myself. I mean, that's, I, I don't want to live in that future. Uh, that's really hard uh, for a girl, you know, like me coming up. And then, you know, and then I tuned into Star Trek and hear all these guys on the bridge. And, and, and the only female is Lieutenant Uhuru in a miniskirt, and she's the telephone operator. It's everywhere. And it was, it was pervasive. And it has, it has slowly changed. And obviously, of course, I also discovered Ursula Le Guin, The Left Hand of Darkness is one, still one of my favorite novels. But those were exceptions. The genre itself had a very sort of, it had a lot of sexist male baggage that um, has um, been pretty hard, I think, for readers of my generation to get past. So I really didn't, um, I never really thought of myself as working in that genre. Now, this characterization is is completely unfair if we're going to look at let's say Kim Stanley Robinson or you know writers of of the modern age but it still affects you know it affects readers that that history affects readers so i feel um i feel very happy in my niche um reaching the readers i reach um with the kind of fiction i write which is speculative in the sense that every novel is speculative but it happens that my fiction is much more engaged with the natural world and with the relationship between humans and the natural world for the simple reason that i'm a biologist i was trained as a biologist that was my first my first life before i made the wonderful discovery that I could make a living as a novelist. So all of my novels carry something, some science, something of the biological world into their, um, in, into the world that I, that I've created. And of late, I've been thinking more about how to bring climate change into that, into that world. And, and Flight Behavior was the first novel I wrote that I would say really specifically set out to deal with climate change and more specifically how how people think about climate change because that's really the biggest problem right um what is it 
that what is why are we in such such profound denial of of what we're doing to the planet and where we're headed why is it that presenting people with evidence doesn't seem to help very much why is it this is the real this is the the, the main question that took me into that novel because i always begin a novel with a question um, that i want to kind of write my way to an answer or at least write my way to getting the reader to think about answers. And the question was this for, for, for the novel Flight Behavior. Why is it that 30 people can look at the same set of evidence, the precisely same, precisely the same facts, and walk away with 30 different conclusions? Why is it that we, what is it that causes us to believe what we believe? It's not evidence, it turns out. It turns out when I delved into the psychological literature to really study this you know, in a scientific way, I discovered that basically the way a human operates is we make, up, we make our decision first, then we look for evidence that supports it. Where do we get our decision-making you know, what sort of impetus from? From people we trust. It comes from inside our tribe, so it comes from our uh, the minister of our church, our most trusted friends, the politicians that we have elected who represent our party to begin with. Um, we believe what they say, and then evidence is really secondary. It's something we accumulate um, uh, at our <laughs> at our convenience. So um, and to make ourselves feel better about what we believe. So that's what I wanted to write about. And what is it? that could begin to get people to cross these barriers, the, across these divides of, of belief. So it, as a novelist, I think that my first, you know, ultimate domain is kind of the human psyche, uh, exploring who we are, how we, how, we, how we become who we are and how we decide what we do. But it's really important to me to, in, involve that with the natural world. I'm interested that you're, you're taking quite a scientific approach uh, to, you know, uh, high literature, or what I would regard as high literature. Thank you. Um, and and I, it actually, I, I've got a, a friend of mine, Daniel McLaughlin, who trained as a, a, a genetic scientist and mm -hmm. is also an author as well. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things that he, he was saying to me uh, is that humans are, are very well designed to deal with the clear and present danger, mm -hmm. you know, in an evolutionary sense. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, if there was a, a fierce animal, um, we would respond extremely well. But we're very badly designed to deal with a distributed, slow-moving uh, threat like climate change because we can't see it. It doesn't. It doesn't present an immediate kind of risk to me or, as you say, my tribe, and so. It therefore can't be happening in some way. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, we're we're just as humans, we're not really well wired to deal with abstract threats. Nothing in our evolution really prepared for us for that. But this is the reason why I think addressing some of these genuine problems, political problems, environmental problems in literature is so important to me because the difference between reading a novel and reading 
a newspaper is precisely that issue of abstraction. When you read a novel, I mean, when you read a, a newspaper, you know, about, you know, let's say a hundred people in Pakistan dying of heat uh, because the wet bulb temperature, you know, reached 34 degrees or, you know, whatever temperature that actually has happened already on the earth where humans cook. Um, you know, if I read about that in a newspaper, it doesn't feel real. But if I read a chapter, as I just did in Kim Stanley Robinson's book, The Ministry of the Future, which opens with a scene of that happening in India where a million people died all at once of heat. He puts me there. I was sweating. I'm actually, uh, I was feeling my body cook because a novel puts you inside a human brain. That's the only medium that can do that. It, it transports you into the inside of another person. So you're looking with that person's eyes and you're feeling that person's sensations. And I was halfway through that chapter and I had to go outside and stand in the cold. That that became real to me. That's my goal is to bring that kind of human empathy to bear on the problems of the world because that is how we can urge each other to get outside of our you know our own bubbles into what has felt more abstract to us and, and that's where we have to go and ultimately we have to care as much about a human life 50 years from now as we do about a human life right now and that is the great question isn't it it's how to value those future lives for most people their children or their grandchildren are about the closest they come but that's a good place to start you know you used a, a beautiful phrase before you said that you were uh, tapping on the glass um with a hammer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, may, so maybe not so gently. Uh, to, to try and, uh, uh, you know, you were talking about building that bridge between um, kind of the way humans are designed and and, and yet our, our need to be able to, to respond here. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think you've just described kind of beautifully how uh, literature can affect uh, people. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm really interested in how, you know, like we, we, we don't have a lot of time uh, and, uh, you know, I sort of feel like I need to pull every single lever that's in, in front of me um, and, and other people, and most of the levers aren't in front of me, they're in front of other people uh, like you. How, how do you think that um, uh, literature, the arts um, can make a really tangible difference to the decisions that people make uh, about either their own lives or their political choices or their uh, consumer choices um, you know as a result of you know having having read one of your books or or, or read one of your poems and I'd, I'd like to get to the poetry in a, in a minute uh, or you know to seeing an artwork or listening to a piece of music. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, um, and I have to back up and say, I'm not really wielding a hammer. You can't do that as an artist because, you know, if if, if you hit people over the head, um, they don't respond well. Um, you do have to be subtle. You have to reach them where they are. And to answer your question, how do we do it? Fundamentally, by creating empathy. Um, 
any any artist is really aiming at bridging that 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 gulf between one human and another but specifically with literature we can we can transport any reader into the life of another reader who is experiencing you know something very different so it's 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 been a it's literature has been a wonderful tool in the past i think for bridging racial divides for for creating empathy you know for um for you know among white people uh to feel to feel and help experience the uh, the, the difficulties of non-white people, for example, bridging the divide between rich and poor. I mean, there are many, many novels that have done this. Bridging the divide between humans and the non-human world is much more difficult. And if I think about the, and, and fundamentally it's because almost all novels are written about people in living in cities in entirely human made environments thinking about and talking about entirely human made things and this is it's a it's partly uh it's a it's it's an example of the really terrible divide between urban and rural which i think about all the time because i'm a rural person and i see it everywhere in my culture uh urban people really control everything you know the the news media the television movies it's all people in cities and all of those out of us out here living you know on the land or around surrounded by land growing food dealing with weather it's just not visible and it's this is also true in literature when i if i think about the last five novels i read i would be really hard pressed to recall one single scene that happened outdoors outside of a building and if there was one it was probably two people sitting on a park bench eating their lunch and talking about definitely not being outside you know so so as a as a person who lives in in the countryside on a farm i'm thinking all of the time about how i can represent we the invisible people who really do have to deal with things like weather, droughts, um, you know, the, the people in cities ultimately, you know, will find out if there's no food in the grocery stores, but it's a very delayed reaction. Um, and a lot of people are, are um, you know, pretty, pretty oblivious uh, to the fact that, you know, half of the population, at least of this country and, and more, than that in the world are people who aren't living in cities who are dealing with the natural world in one way or another so that's kind of objective number one for me is just to remind people that whether or not they think about it they are a part of a natural uh, ecosystem they're only breathing oxygen because a leaf of a tree made it for them cut down on the all the trees you're done no more breathing uh, you know nobody thinks about that you are wherever you live you're part of a food chain um that food chain is fragile it has a lot of parts and almost all of them are not people and they they need uh they need sustenance they need to be sustainable all of these things that seem so fundamental to me are not 
and they don't appear much in literature. And the reason for that is mo it's again, this, this divide that happens pretty early in our education system where people choose the humanities or the scientists. Most, most literary authors I know took their last science class probably in ninth grade or something you know when they were what when they were 13 and haven't and you know walked away from chemistry because it bored them and haven't looked back so it's a i, I think scientific illiteracy is or scientific apathy um is a huge part of the problem too so just trying to engage more people with the, and get them interested in natural processes is a big step. Um, and one that I feel like, you know, any of us who can uh, do should do. And another thing I just, I try to encourage all the time is for young people, uh, for young people to think about um, pursuing both courses. I, I, any, you know, any young person who wants to be a writer, I encourage to take some science classes to bring, or to learn a lot about something other than, you know, the English language. So you have information to bring into your art because it's a, it's a way that people enjoy being educated, really. Uh, sometimes we become educated uh, against our will, <laughs> but you know, our, in a novel, but are happy afterwards to have learned what we learned, or if not happy, at least, you know, glad, uh, glad of being, you know, if we learn about something terrible that we didn't know about before, it, you know, we have become a better human, um, better equipped to live and be, you know, be, be a good citizen of the, of the planet. And, so is that a lot of levers? Uh, to yeah, pull? Well, <laughs> I mean, it's a good, it's a good start, right? I mean, I, I think um, that, uh, I, you know, there would be any number of cases where I think people have put down a book and decided to do something differently as mm -hmm. a result. You know? Sure, sure. Um, uh, I think my, my mother's actually took up um, nurturing um, butterflies after reading <laughs> one of yours. I, I wanted to ask about flight behaviour uh, because the it, there's quite a memorable exchange uh, between um, uh, Della Robbia. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Yeah, Della Robbia. Uh -huh. uh, yeah. Della Robbia. Um, and she's being quizzed by a uh, quite a sort of a self-righteous uh, campaigner um, ab about about her uh, lifestyle and. Um, and and then the the campaigner sort of really discovers that, you know, um, it's kind of as a result of Delarobia's poverty that you know she's actually one of the lowest emitting people. Yeah, in, right. In he's he's he has this checklist of things you should do, like yeah. fly less often in planes. And she's never been on an airplane. He's, yeah. He says, uh, you know, bring your own utensils to a restaurant. And she says, I don't. I can't afford to go to restaurants. You know, these keep your thermostat, you know, at a certain uh, temperature, and she's trying to keep her heat on so her free, her children don't freeze. It's just, it, it's a, it, it's sort of, it's that novel is about the collisions of different worlds because of this this extraordinary event that happens that sort of the the prime mover of of the novel is this 
this, well, I won't give it away, but this remarkable event that happens in this small rural town because of climate change. And half of the people there say, oh, it's a miracle sent by God. But the scientists who see it say, oh, this is very bad news. And then it brings all these different people, you know, from different places into the town. And that as a literary device was a great way for me to start to explore and uh, you know, sort of display or unpack, as they say in the modern uh, argot, uh, sort of some of these differences, some of these divides that people don't even know about a lot. So, so much of the environmental movement is urban and very uh, 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 happening among very privileged people. And one of the things I really wanted to look at in that novel is income disparity, because that's that's a huge environmental issue you know when you when you when you find out that you know like any one of us in the united states is using the same amount of electricity as you know a village in india or you know sort of our consumption habits our like any any look in any closet you know in the united states and find enough shoes to you know fill it you know shop to uh uh to put shoes on a whole classroom of kids in Africa, the shoes would be the wrong size, obviously. But you know what I'm saying? Mm. Just to mm. look at not just, you know, sort of personal use, but personal use in a con in a global context, and even start to think twice about the these rules that seem as true to us as the rules of gravity, starting with more is better, you know, that can, consumption is, you know, having more things will always make me feel better. I mean, that's the root of all evil right there, environmentally speaking. Um, you know, these presumptions like of among generations that each generation will have more uh, material goods, material wealth than the generation before, which is, that's the one that I really wanted to look at in my most recent novel, which is called Unsheltered, which is really looking at kind of paradigm shift. How do you even start to question these fundamental assumptions of capitalism that have gotten us to this place where anyone who can have more does have more. And if you step back from that, you know, people think that you have, you know, you are either insane or you've had a religious conversion. You know, if you choose to have less than you could possibly afford, there's something wrong with you. You know, all of these cultural assumptions that have gotten us literally in hot water. <laughs> in, um, in, in that challenge that you're sort of laying out for the uh, privileged white urban uh, environmentalists, uh, and I'm not just thinking the United States here, but, um, you know, uh, closer mm -hmm. to home here in, in New Zealand as well. Mm -hmm. What one of the uh, assumptions I guess I have about how change happens is through those kinds of interactions that you're describing there in flight behaviour with De La Robia and, and the sets of assumptions that the the people who want to bring about change, you know, the environmental movement and so on, uh, the climate activists, have about other people. You talked about the urban-rural uh, kind of gap um, yeah. in, in understanding before. Uh, in this interaction, uh, you know, it's 
between um, people whose life circumstances are so different. There's a just this kind of inconceivable. Um, it's hard. It's hard to distance. communicate. Yeah, it, across it that divide. Mm -hmm. And I guess the question, and you know, working on the theory that for every action there's an equal and opposite reaction. Uh huh. When those who those of us i count myself amongst them uh, who want to bring about rapid change uh, in order to avert a climate crisis mm -hmm. uh, or to stop it from getting any worse than it already is uh, you know is there a, is there some uh, a self critique you think that we can make in terms of the way that we're trying to bring about change that we're uh, it perhaps in, in trying to cause this change to occur we're actually create we're putting up barriers um, mm -hmm. and 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 causing a, a, a counter reaction uh, that that makes change harder rather than easier well there's you know I mean that that Delarobia conversation that you know that we, we were just talking about uh, is is kind of a, a microcosm of this global conversation about you know starting with the climate accords and the the people of india saying wait a minute everybody has to stop now with you you know now that you have all you have and we're trying to get water and electric you know sort of like the fundamentals of health and safety to our citizens it's um you know it is it's it's something uh that we all have to really come terms with in, uh, uh, you know with respect to history and where we are and what colonialism has brought about and uh, kind of our responsibility for reparation and you know there's a lot of people feel like there's not much they can do um, a, a short uh, you know beyond just you know recycling or limiting or you know getting a more environment you know a, a, buying a car that use has better miles per gallon or you know whatever or an electric car whatever and you know there's a lot of debate about like does that really matter if i cut back my consumption what's that going to change in the long run well this is what i think about that First of all, you know everything helps. Any any individual action you take, in terms of examining your conscience and trying to live more sustainably, is valuable. It is also good for your soul if you want to be a good person. You know to to help you live with you know yourself and your position in the universe. But here's another thing that I think is extremely important. If we can establish for ourselves that we can reverse this, you know, this capitalist religion of more is better, buy more things and, you know, use up more resources. If we can reverse that in a personal way, if we can see for ourselves, oh, I can, I can live happily and comfortably without being on an airplane for a whole year, which most of us have just done. Um, if I could live happily and comfortably without buying more clothes or more shoes or more, you know, or having a bigger car or whatever, then that gives me more confidence in campaigning and voting for politicians who are saying, let's all do this much. Let's set these kinds of caps on consumption for those who could afford to buy more. And, you know, while we're working on all the other solutions at the same time, um, I am hoping that the pandemic 
has convinced a whole, like one whole earth full of people that we can survive on a lot less travel, a lot fewer meetings, you know, sort of a lot less consumption uh, than had become accustomed. And that we will take some of these habits forward in a, in a mindful way. And that would be something, that'd be a, something to write a novel about. <laughs> Wouldn't it though? <laughs> are, are you working on that? Well, I'm working on a novel. Uh, I am nearly finished with a novel that I started right before COVID emerged. And so that one is really not about the pandemic, but I think there's, you know, there's always a, a, a lag time. I call it the jet lag of the consciousness. It's usually the things that I was really, really worried about and processing two years ago that I'm writing about now, because, you know, you have to, you have to figure out what everything means to make, and then you have to figure out how to make it beautiful and interesting. And, you know, what we haven't really talked about much, we've talked about meaning, what novels, what literature means and what it can do. But first of all, it has to be, it has to be beautiful. The language has to make people, you know, just, you know, it has to just explode all those happiness neurons in your mind, you know, that, uh, as you read the language, it has to create a place that you want to go and be and stay inside of. And you do that with characters, with compelling, uh, compelling personalities and your characters and interesting conflicts and a beautiful, you know, or not necessarily beautiful, but fascinating uh, setting and a good plot. You have to give people a reason to turn every page. You cannot ever make it evident that you are you are here to educate your reader because that's condescending and i would i would never presume that i know more about anything than my readers because i don't know who they are i mean any one of them could have a phd in the subject that i'm writing about so i have to go into this modestly and hopefully and really create literature as a conversation so that more than telling rather than telling people what to think i'm asking them what to think about what they think and so yeah when i'm you know i'm pecking on the glass or i'm wrapping on the glass all i'm saying is look over here uh come take a walk with me you know through this particular thorny woodland that i've created and when we finish this walk you'll go your way and you will have been somewhere that you hadn't imagined going that's a beautiful segue into your poetry um, because uh, recently you contributed a poem to the Time magazine special mm-hmm. uh, on uh, Fight for the Earth. And I, um, I'd actually quite like to uh, ask you to read it out because um, I'm, I'm curious about uh, how, you, how, how you would speak it. Um, I would love to do that for you, but I don't have the book right here. Could, okay. could, 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 I, could I run upstairs and get it, or what? How would uh, you sure. Know? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Hold the hold the phone, as they say. I'll be right back. <laughs> the beauty of not being live. Yeah. <laughs> okay. 
Now, are we okay? Yeah, perfect. Okay. And thank you. I really appreciate your <laughs> indulgence with this. <laughs> no problem. Okay. Great barrier. The cathedral is burning. Absent flame or smoke. Stained glass explodes in silence. Fractal scales of angel, damsel, rainbow, parrot. Charred beams of blackened coral lie in heaps on the sacred floor. White stones fallen from high places. Spires collapsed, crushing the sainted turtle and gargoyle octopus. Something there is in my kind that cannot love a reef a tundra, a plain stone breast of desert, ever quite enough. A tree, perhaps, once recomposed as splendid furniture. A forest, after the whole of it, is planed to posts and beams and raised to a heaven of earnest construction in the name of Our Lady. All Paris stood on the bridges to watch her burning. Believing a thing this old, this large and beautiful, must be holy and cannot be lost. And coral temples older than Charlemagne suffocate unattended, bleach and bleed from the eye, the centered heart. Lord of leaves and fishes, lead me across this great divide. Teach me how to love the sacred places, not as one devotes to one who made me in his image and is bound to love me back. I mean as a body loves its microbial skin, the worm, its nape of loam, all secret otherness forgiven. Love beyond anything I will ever make of it. It's beautiful. Thank you. And I say this as someone whose experience of life is far more prose than poetry. Um, what, what, what was it that inspired you to write that? Well, uh, two obvious things. I, had, I was lucky enough to travel to Australia and to um, actually spend four days on the Great Barrier Reef um, snorkeling and, and, and looking at it, looking at what's alive there and what is no longer alive there. And then um, shortly after um, the cathedral that, you know, the famously the Cathedral of Notre Dame in Paris burned down and it just struck me. I had just come from this profound tragedy, you know, just witnessing this, the, the end of this, I mean, it's not ended, it is still there. I mean, there's still a lot to see and a lot to love of the Great Barrier Reef, but there's so much that it looked to me like a burned cathedral. It looked like, you know, all these, as I described in the poem, these collapsed spires and blackened beams. And I just thought, everybody, everybody's so sad about this thing that we made but this thing the world made is so much more complex and to me so much more godly. Um, where is our faith if we can't grieve, you know, for that? So, so that was the, um, that was where the poem came from. And it's about, you know, the um, great barrier, you know, is it's that that's, that's the nugget, you know, that's the crux of the matter I'm getting at. Something there is in my camp, something there is in my kind that cannot love a reef, 
what is it in us that can't cross this great divide and love other lives as much as we love uh, human lives? And the second part of that stanza, you know, you talk about a tree perhaps once recomposed as splendid furniture and mm-hmm. so on. So, you know, we can love wood <laughs> once, <laughs> once, we've, once we've remade it into... To serve yeah. our purposes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But to love the tree itself as a living thing um, is much harder for us. It's just, it takes, it takes work. So that's, that's, my, that's part of my job. Why do you think that is? That it's my job or, no, no. <laughs> or why, that it's you, difficult? You, that's right. Why do you think it's so difficult? Oh, that's just basic human wiring. You know, it's not, it's, we evolved in circumstances that basically required us to preserve our lives at the cost of all others. You know, I mean, everything in our, in our, you know, in, for, for the first, you know, many, many millennia of our human existence, everything we saw was either uh, food <laughs> or an enemy or something to disregard, you know, in, in the non-human world. And everything in the human world was either my tribe or an enemy to be killed or to be, to be fled from. I mean, it was all that simple. And so, um, you know, nothing, and, and, and that was, you know, think about it. That's where we spent most of our time, you know, becoming, you know, that was the laboratory that created us. We've changed as humans in terms of our neural wiring, virtually not at all since we came out of that environment. So that's, that's the animal that we are. And given that, it's honestly a miracle that we have managed to create all of these rules that are fundamentally counter to our, you know, our innate one. And to get over that, to, you know, to make laws that say, those judgments don't matter. We are all created equal. Um, and then to learn to honor them is a profound, uh, a profound accomplishment of the human animal. It really is. It's, um, and, and the fact that we, you know, we have these commandments, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal. That's all, all counter to our basic wiring. <laughs> I'm sorry, it just is. It's also, we're also a really social animal and we evolved and uh, sort of made a lot of progress in our human evolution because of our sociality, because of our capacity for altruism for language, for communication. So all of these things, you know, we have this good stuff in us too. And so it's all kind of a balance. We're using the good stuff to try to counter the bad stuff. And as a, as, um, as a sort of, as a worker in the language arts, that's where I see my role. I'm trying to, trying to kind of use the use the plus side of human you know sort of our human evolution to work against the other part have you read humankind no i haven't uh it's i'm i now cannot remember the name of the author he's dutch and it's been he writes beautifully and 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 
uh, it's been translated beautifully into English. And he, you know, he, he actually talks about the uh, sort of emerging idea that it wasn't just because we had opposable thumbs that we managed to do so well as a species and to become the only human species on Earth when there were other human species around at the same time. Um, right and killing and eating each other <laughs> yeah and, and well and yeah i mean he actually says that it was our sociability which was mm -hmm. the single dis most distinguishing uh thing you know that um, right yeah other other human species were as intelligent if not more so um but lacking and in larger the, yeah yeah, larger, more more powerful, more robust. But it was the yeah the yeah I did a lot in graduate school. I did my um, sort of my second major, you could say, was anthropology and physical anthropology. So yeah, I, it's a you know it's it's a, what I, that was a while ago that I was in grad school. But I'm fascinated by that by human evolution, and I have kept up. Um, and I do think that's so interesting that. Um, well, upright posture made a lot of changes that were maybe accidents, including, you know, in our sort of the construction of our, our larynx and so forth. But language, uh, sociality and language are just are, are key to um, sort of how we got where we are uh, to be the predominant species on Earth. And so, yeah, it was not... Uh, was not brute force. Um, I mean, most of us actually do have some Neanderthal in us, uh, the you know sort of the bigger guys. Um, so, so there was obviously a lot of inbreed, you know, crossbreeding, not inbreeding, but crossbreeding between human species and subspecies. But um, yeah, uh, you know, as they say around here, uh, you catch more flies with honey than you know with the bad stuff. So um, that's, uh, yeah, that's definitely part of our story. And I didn't mean to say that, you know, sort of all human impulse is just, you know, to kill, but it we aren't really wired to love nature. Um, it is one of the many things that we've had to learn as a, as a species that is increasingly withdrawing ourselves uh, from our natural habitat and sort of estranging ourselves really from our natural habitat. It's, um, it's, it's a big human project to, to re-engage and remember that we can't live without it as much as we pretend that we are. Can I ask you about the last verse of that poem then? Um, Lord mm -hmm. of leaves and fishes, lead me across this great divide. Teach me how to love the sacred places, not as one devotes to one with a capital O one, one. Mm -hmm. uh, who made me in his image and is bound to love me back who who or what is the one there that you're talking about well I mean we're referring it's sort of you know the, po the poem is yours you can interpret as you wish but I've been talking about I, the previous stanza mm. refers to the cathedral and you know this thing that we built to you know sort of you know, gods of our construction, um, which you can take any way you want. But, um, you know, it's easy for us to love a, 
a God who made us in his image because it's like self-love, right? And so this is this poem is all about getting outside of the self and looking at this other kind of spiritual worth, we could say, um, that you know, to to love to 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 love otherness, you know, to love the other. I don't have the let the I'll let the poem fall open, but um Okay, um, lead me across this great divide, not to love just the things that look like me, other people, but um, I mean, as a body loves its microbial skin, we have, as it turns out, millions of other creatures living on us and in us that are keeping us alive. We didn't know this. When I was raising my kids, when my kids were little, you were supposed to sterilize everything because, you know, all the microbia were bad. Now we know we need them to survive. And so that's a kind of love we don't even think about, but our bodies are, you know, in a physical sense, depending on, I mean, that's a kind of love depending on these other creatures um, to remain healthy um, in the way that, you know, we all depend on our environment, our ecosystems. Uh, to survive. Um, the worm, it's nape of loam. I'm just thinking about, you know, these creatures in the darkness that depend on all of the things around them. Teach me to love like that. Love beyond anything I will ever make of it. Not to love it just because, not to love the tree just because I could, could cut it down and make, you know, this nice table. To love it because it's alive. That's the kind of love that, um, you know, I'm, I'm hoping to cultivate in this poem, just a little tap on the glass. Just, just think about it if you didn't before. Barbara, thank you so much for uh, your time and for your generosity uh, in uh, joining me today. Uh, I know that this is going to be an absolutely fascinating listen for the people who, who tune in. Uh, and that seems like a, a, a poetic place uh, to uh, complete our conversation. So thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me and thank you for the good work that you're doing in New Zealand to you and all of your listeners. Thank you very much for listening and thank you to Barbara for joining me. Feel free to get in touch anytime. My email again is james.shaw at parliament.govt.nz. Next time, I'll be speaking to David Axelrod, the former chief strategist to President Obama. See you then. This podcast is authorised by me, James Shaw, List MP Parliament Buildings, Wellington.